Cairo, Seattle. Jeff Kemp played over a decade in the NFL. In fact, he played over 20 years of football in the quarterback position. After all, he was Jack's son. Jack Kemp, the longtime NFL star with the Buffalo Bills, went on to be a senator and one of the more powerful political leaders of the 80s and 90s. And there was his oldest son, Jeff, striving to be like dad. Over 20 years of organized football, though, he went into a season being the starting quarterback just once. And that really is just a fragment of the entire story that Jeff Kemp is going to share with you. And what was beautiful about it, I've known Jeff a long time. He and his wife, Stacy, counseled us. Uh, We're around the Seattle Seahawks, one of the teams in which he played for. I've watched his sons grow up and mature into just awesome young men. And I've watched Jeff really just grow and evolve through his years in business and in ministry and in leadership as well. And I think intertwined in all of his life was that intersection of achievement and faith. How do I strive to be everything my dad is empowering me to be, yet have a humble faith that is so real and is really the roots of any of that worldly success. Well, you're about to find out how he's walked through that journey. Let's start in the way, way back machine. I know a lot of your story, but I don't know it from the beginning. Take me into the Kemp home growing up. Um, I remember San Diego. Dad was playing for the Chargers and... We used to skateboard together and throw the football in the backyard and slip and slide. And um, he'd take me to his speeches as a San Diego Charger quarterback. He had bounced around the NFL for three years and never really made it. And then the new league started in 60 and he became a you know big time quarterback in California where he was from. And we were just having a good little life until dad broke his finger and uh, for like the fourth time and they fused it. They said, you might not be able to throw again. He said, well, just shape it to a football. So they fused his knuckle to the shape of a football. And uh, the Chargers made a mistake with their waiver wire, and Dad got sold for 100 bucks to Buffalo, which to him was the worst possible thing that could happen. He was a Californian. He was the Chargers quarterback. His dream was coming true. And now he didn't even know where Buffalo is other than it's snowy. And he didn't want to go. But my mom and my grandma you know, had that phrase, God doesn't close a door that he doesn't open another one. And I think they took their voices as teammates to help dad get through that blitz. Um, and we'll use that metaphor of the bad turning for good. You know, quarterbacks understand that. But life is life is hard. There's difficult things that happen. We don't want them to happen. In football, we almost get trained for them because we, we know they're going to happen. And a good quarterback, good offense wants it to happen. Were you – how old were you at that point? Three or four when we went to Buffalo. Okay. And then uh, – Do you remember that? Can you remember – I remember going to Buffalo. I remember giant icicles. I remember the snow. Um, I remember going to War Memorial Stadium on Saturdays with Dad and Eddie Rakowski and Paul McGuire and O.J. Simpson in Dad's last season. Um, Dad had guys, Cookie Gilchrist and others, these players, come to our house. He had two Buffalo Bill uh, rookies run my birthday party one July. He probably paid them because they didn't get paid much money back then to get them to come and run. Uh, we had punt, pass, and kick, sprint around the house, throw a football, throw a baseball, hit a baseball. You're the coolest contests. kid in Buffalo. Oh, only on the weeks where he won. On the weeks where he lost, man, they would chew me up at school. <laughs> uh, I was 11 when Dad um, retired and ran for Congress. And bigger than life for you when when you were growing up? Are the brothers and sisters? Yeah, I have a, uh, two sisters who are three and six years younger, Jennifer and Judith. And then my little brother Jimmy didn't come along till 12 years after me. So I was going off to college when he was five. We're close today. He played quarterback at Wake Forest and 
nine years in Canada. I used to put them in a Tonka truck and shove them down our steep driveway into the street. And then finally my sister said, at least put a football helmet on them. (laughs) (laughs) So you made them tough. Um, The Kemp home was dominated by my dad's optimism and vision and encouragement and hugs and kisses and you're a Kemp, be a leader. You're a Kemp, be a leader. That that was ingrained in us. Mm-hmm. Um, and my sisters, you know, they picked it up. My little brother picked it up. I picked it up. Um, Dad Dad was very accepting and loving, but he had only one, one uh, channel, and it was optimistic encouragement that you were going to make everything better and your day's going to come. You're going to become a starter. I was a little scrawny third-string quarterback a lot of my life. 20 years of football, Brock, counting – Seventh grade and ninth grade, I quit in eighth grade because I couldn't be the quarterback. Uh, some other kid's dad was a coach, so I couldn't play. And uh, I've only been the starter in the summer going into the season one time out of 20 years, wow. my senior year of college. Wow. But the reason I made it to the NFL, the reason I made it through high school, the reason I kept going is because I had this voice saying, think like a starter. You're going to be a starter. Your day's going to come. Hey, I saw you today. You look good warming up. I said, Actually, Dad said, I saw you today. You look good. I said, Dad, I didn't even get in the game. I was all mad. And he said, I know. I saw you warming up. <laughs> you look great. But it was kind of an optimistic encouragement. Achieve. We love you. Not putting pressure on you, but since he played pro football, I only had one track I could imagine. I had to be a good quarterback, and I had to go play pro football. And I thought I could. It just was really late developing. Was there faith from Dad or Mom? Faith from Mom. Macro faith from Dad from dad, like God has a plan. He's got a purpose. You're in your right place. Um, but it wasn't a personal, Hey, let's say prayers together. Let me talk to you about the journey with Jesus. I didn't see dad really apologize or show evidence of the relationship with Jesus. I think that happened with him very late in life, even though he really had it intellectually and could articulate it fabulously well and had fabulous political positions shaped on Judeo Christian principles. Mom was more the spiritual anchor, praying with us, reading the Bible to us, playing these little Christian records when we were little kids, stuff like that. Idyllic childhood, and I always thought I would play pro football, but in high school and college, that was starting to be a dream that didn't seem very realistic, so I didn't tell anyone about it. You know what's interesting, Jeff, and I not thought about this before with you and, and your dad, but it's a little like, and stay with me here, but the Peyton and the Manning family and Archie in the fact that you were old enough to watch some of your dad's career. And in talking to Peyton, like, he loved that. I mean, those were the most amazing years of his life where he and Coop and and little Eli eventually and playing in the Superdome before games. Matt Hasselbeck, actually, on on this podcast, talked about that, playing uh, with Archie and and Peyton and those guys when their dads were together. And You were old enough to really, like, embrace some of your dad's Yeah, football was very central in our family and seemed natural for me. It wasn't on the big scale of those guys. It was AFL, Buffalo Bills, War Memorial Stadium, the rock pile. It wasn't fancy like the Superdome or anything. But yeah, your dad was playing professional football and that's what I wanted to do. My story probably is that I had a certain amount of confidence and assurance that I would be good, but a lot of insecurity at the moment that I wasn't yet good. And dad's voice kept telling me, I'm going to make it. So I kind of knew it would come. But each year, man, I was worried. You know, do they think I'm impressive? Can I throw harder than that guy or run faster than them? I was so competitive. Um, always wanting to win and show that I can do well. Because you're a camp. You're a camp and you got to be a leader. And that resonated probably all the way through. All the way through junior high, 
into high school. It's just in, it's inbred and it kind of went with me. Now the cool thing is dad's career, especially after football, going through the civil rights era where he really was kind of a, a race uniter and an inclusive guy, um, had wonderful friendships with his black teammates in politics. He was always the guy that wanted to make America better for everyone. He had a bleeding heart. He was the bleeding heart conservative. He cared for everyone. He wanted free enterprise to work for everyone. He was the reconciler and loved the inner cities. And so leadership I could see meant make life better for other people, be a servant of sorts, but it was largely about ideas and performing big things to make life better. And I realized raising my kids that I grew up with a lot more of performance encouragement from my dad than maybe faith and character encouragement, which is probably where you and your wife and, and my wife Stacy and I have put more of the focus with our kids. Just that relational aspect of it, right? Just being able to relationally connect and not just have the vision and the grand vision, but, man, Jeff, in this day and age, if you don't get down into the nitty-gritty and connect relationally, they are pulled in so many ways. I mean, so many unbelievable different directions. I think that at the end of the day, we're all insecure and we all want to be accepted and we all want to kind of be loved and connected and to belong. And uh, football and sports gave me a whole lot of opportunity to belong to something. And I didn't mind if I was second or third string, I eventually was going to get there. But even when you get there, you start to realize I'm not that. I really need a relationship with people. And that's different than having them say you played well. And so I wanted more and more relationship with my dad. I had it pretty strongly with my mom. Um, and then I drifted away from God in, in college, even though I believed in God and, and Jesus and could articulate a lot of it. It wasn't on purpose. It was just kind of drifting because that was where the culture at Dartmouth was. And insecurities made me want to fit into the crowd and be successful. And I didn't really carve out a God path during those years. So when it comes down to it, I eventually knew that I was insecure and I needed an answer. And that's kind of what ended up happening at the end so of college. So years of performance. As you look back on a lot of those years through junior high and high school and even into college, years of being a performer. Being a performer, but knowing I should also act like a nice guy. I mean, I was a nice guy, but I also acted more like a nice guy because I thought it's nice for people to think you're nice and there was a right way to do things. And I cared, and yet there was a selfish twist and a little bit of a, a motivation flaw inside of me. Perhaps there's some in all of us, but I think I had more than my fair share of wanting people to like me and think I was good, good at sports and good at my faith and good at how I treat people and good at anything I do, a good guy. And I didn't really live up to all of that during my college years. I think I started just going with the crowd and becoming a lot more selfish, compromising in uh, moral areas, drinking areas, girl areas, pride areas, language areas, and none of it out, out of rebellion from God, just kind of going with the flow. And the wild story there is I was so hungry to be successful. I finally got successful. My acne cleared up. I had bad acne in college. I got it again in pro football. It must have come when I was nervous. I'm so glad Stacy stuck with me. But my acne kind of cleared up. I got popular in a fraternity. I was starting at the school. I got a great degree from Dartmouth. I have a contract with the Rams to go be a free agent. And the week of um, graduation parties at Dartmouth before 
the actual ceremonies. It was just, you know, mayhem and what's the word, frivolity. And uh, going to bed at four in the morning, drunk, very drunk every night. And I would lay down to sleep and couldn't sleep because I was sober as could be spiritually. I was thinking about my life. I was thinking about my future. I was thinking about my past. I was thinking about who I was. And here's the things I realized. Man, I say that I'm confident and I act all cocky, but I am insecure as heck. I worry about what everyone thinks about me. And uh, I'm selfish in the way I treat my friends and the way I treat girls and my outlook on life. And I'm supposed to be a leader, like Dad said, but I'm really a follower in a lot of the choices I was making, you know? Um, And there's no stinking way I'm going to make the LA Rams and have my dream of pro football if I'm living this far away from God. And then the verse, Romans 8.28, came in my head. So this is after way, way, way too many beers. But crystal clarity from a spiritual sobriety standpoint. And two nights in a row, that verse came in my head. All things work together for good. For those who love God, which is where I used to put the period. And it continues to say, and who are called according to his purpose. Wow. I hit it right then. I was like, okay, God, you're telling me I've been called according to my purpose, Jeff. But maybe Jesus is the best way to live. And I don't really have the guts to change in front of all my cool, fun, awesome Dartmouth buddies, but are kind of living by a different code. But I was leaving and going to the Rams, and I want to follow you, so take my life. And by the way, can you help me make the team? Which there was a part of that in it too. And you mentioned Stacy is sticking by. Uh, did you meet Stace in college? Stacy went to University of Southern California. She was a year younger than me, and I went out to the Rams. It was in Cal State Fullerton training camp. She was going to USC and coming home on weekends. Her mom had cut out an article about me, thinking, "Oh, here's a good Christian guy, congressional <laughs> family, blah blah blah." And she wasn't up for any um, matchmaking and didn't look at the article till actually a week later when she came home. She snuck it and looked at it herself. And something in Stacy made her choose to write me a letter and start praying for me. And she read in the paper that the Rams practiced like at 9 and 2.30 in the afternoon. She started praying twice a day. She said it just kind of came to her mind. She'd be driving along and she'd think, oh, I'm going to pray for Jeff, this guy that I read an article on. And she wrote me a letter, asked a boss of hers at the USC Athletic Department, for the address of the Rams, sent it to me. No phone number, no plan to meet. It was clearly just a sweet, young, new Christian woman writing an encouragement letter saying she'd pray for me because the article actually gave a little bit of indication at the end that I had a faith in Jesus. Um, It wasn't the Tim Tebow era back then. And so when they said, you're you're fifth string and they're not going to keep five, they're going to keep three, are you worried about getting cut? And I said, no, I'm leaving it in God's hands, which was my Romans 8.28. Everything's going to work out for good. And she read that, wrote me an encouragement, said she was following God and started praying for me. So you're looking up at the ceiling in Dartmouth. There's an emptiness. You know it. You have this outer shell that everything is great. It wasn't Brock Hewardish, but it was pretty good. <laughs> right. Yeah, it, was, it was the Dartmouth version, yeah. <laughs> not the UW version. Yeah, but you know it when there's not peace. And there was certainly not peace in your life at all. There was fun and there was success and there's popularity, but no peace. No peace. And so you're looking at the ceiling tiles. You're getting ready to travel to L.A., where was the Reformation? It was pretty much the the day I left Dartmouth, which was probably two or three days after that experience with Romans 8.28 and the Holy Spirit and God, who I believe I knew. And he had 
grabbed a hold of me. He gets the credit for this whole story. But I had uh, kind of ignored him, and he was calling me back. And he let me try it my way and see that I don't really run my life all that well, which is a good lesson that I still need to learn. We all do, you know. I was just doing some reading. It's just awesome how these podcasts all come together because I was just doing a little reading. And in fact, this is a cool praise to you, Jeff. The morning group that I meet with at 5 a.m. on Wednesday mornings, we have a little check-in and we do a little rating every week. How's our walk with the Lord? How's our relationship with our wife, our relationship with our kids, and our relationships at work? And we rate great amount, one through 10. And I don't know if it was your brilliance at Dartmouth or you had stole it from somebody I else. I stole it from someone You stole it from somebody else. There you go. But you know what? You encouraged Graham and Steve and some of my friends. And that is a weekly staple in our lives. That and we're reading. And we're reading. So cool. Yeah, it is awesome. And we're reading on Galatians right now. And in it, in its very first chapter, is talking. And I just hear your story. And it's like we hear all the time, oh, I was saved. I was saved. No, you were rescued. You were rescued in that moment. By God's grace alone, nothing of your doing, nothing of Kemp is a leader, nothing of no. Kemp is great, nothing of Kemp is going to do all of this, but you were simply rescued in that moment. Apprehended and pulled away from my own ways. I mean, it really, if you think about it, we ought to just be on our knees all the time saying, thank you so much, God, that you opened our eyes, you opened our heart. I mean, we can't even choose to believe or search on our own. And that's a much better place now to live your life out of gratitude for him, to love him back. And then those things he asks you to do, like be more humble and put others ahead of yourself and apologize first and forgive first and don't make it about you. Those are hard things to do. But if you're doing them for him out of gratitude, they start to happen for the right reason, not to impress or perform or check off some box. Hey, by the way, that thing that you guys are doing, um, I continue to do that. I've done it for all these years. And I have two guys that I do it with and we meet every single Monday and we've simplified it down now to where we say, what's the most important thing that you need to talk to me about today? And we're deep enough now that we trust that God's going to tell that guy what's the important topic to bring up, but it's all those areas. What a blast friendship is it's the best to help someone grow, to become who God meant them to be that you never would have without a team. And what a blast then is we transition back to you going to L.A. and you're supposed to be the fifth stringer. And yeah. you're not supposed to make this team. No, I was a, an arm in training camp. Did you know that, Van? <laughs> um, I didn't think of it that way. I, I really thought, you know, something good's going to happen here. I don't care that the odds are 50 to you know, one or whatever they are. I thought something good's going to happen. You know, I can be one of the three guys. Well, I didn't become one of the three guys. I became the fourth and they kept four for some crazy reason. And I, I got to be the fourth guy who went to the games in a, you know, colorful sweater instead of uh, a uniform. And my sister said, Jeff, you look great. I love that sweater you're wearing today. She saw it on TV. My career was not impressive at the beginning. Um, I was the lowest possible salary. I was fourth string and then third string and then second string. And then someone got hurt and I replaced him and got to start, and then it started being kind of a up-and-down th thing. Start for three of 11 years and most of the time be on the bench and get a lot of hope and then get traded. Guys like Steve Young got in the way, stuff like that. Oh, sure. Just a few of those guys. But your walk in these years? My walk was a real steady journey upward. As soon as I went to L.A., 
I met amazing guys. The chaplain, John Warehouse from the Dodgers, was teaching Bible studies and took an interest in me. And uh, George Andrews and my roommate, George Lozer from the University of Michigan. And Walt Arnold and Jackie Slater and uh, just great guys and a great Bible study. And then eventually another Bible study teacher, chaplain named Chuck Obremski, who did the Angels and the Rams and the Mighty Ducks. He became my best friend and he discipled me. So I grew during those years, but started growing the most when we got traded. Because most of the time I'd go to Bible study and think, what does this have to say about how my life can become really special the way God wants it to be, and I can end up being a starter and give God the glory. I, just, I really, man, I put it through a filter that looking back on it was still very Jeff-centered and not Jesus-centered. And the amazing thing is God puts up with where we are and works with where we are to bring us to where he wants us to be so we can become his version of us. And all that stuff that was in me is where other people are, so I can tell that story and not worry about it because there's... You know, grace and a path for anyone, wherever they are, to take a step towards God and, and have him accept them. And then they'll take another step and pretty soon he starts transforming you. And that's what happened. And we got traded and we started realizing that our life wasn't about my career and God blessing me. It was about discipling us, training us, teaching us to get through this very intense marriage with two very, very opposite personalities that were committed, but not having a whole lot of fun so that we could help others. And that's what we started doing on the Niners and then the Seahawks. Yeah, there's a little pronoun change here because there was a lot of I, I, and then you just very, you know, well, well done. You went to a we and to an us. So that that wonderful lady that wrote you that very sweet letter. I married Stacy in 83 right after the second season, but she's been with me the whole way. So we dated starting the summer of my rookie year. Um, And there was a little hiccup or two where I drifted a little bit. But for the most part, we've been together the whole time, and we got married right after the second season. Our dates were the team Bible study. Um, she met my parents right away, like on the third date that we had. And she was really committed to Christ, um, a great student of the Bible, um, and a fabulous partner for me because she complimented so many things that I didn't have and that I needed, which kind of made it hard for her sometimes, or many times, because I'm kind of fuzzy-wuzzy, impulsive, gray, anything's possible, here we go, let's try that. And she is black and white, get it done, let's follow the rules, let's do what the Bible says. And I'm just a, a little more creative about my journey, a little more self in it than Stacy. But it's been a great team to raise kids and a really good team to help other marriages, which is what we ended up doing on other uh, on the teams you know, that we got traded to and then our neighborhood and then our church and ended up doing that for a lifetime. You go from L.A. where you started, you had a really good year. You know, through 13 touchdowns, a couple thousand yards. There was a guy named Eric Dickerson. Okay. That was all right. He anchored things pretty well. So when you passed, they were kind of shocked. And uh, there were some open people. So that was fun to go to the playoffs with Eric Dickerson. That had to be cool. It was awesome. And dad and family and everybody. I mean, as you look back on that. I felt like I was made to thrive and become a starting quarterback in the NFL. And I figured... Hey, the longer it takes, the better the story is going to be when I finally get there. So I really didn't care how long I waited. Um, I mean, I cared, but I figured when it happens, it's going to happen. The hard thing was to go to the playoffs, play a pretty boring game, lose, have the Rams kind of have second thoughts and think, I'm not the big-time starter for the future. Get a guy from Canada, put him in front of you, not really have him be much different and offer a whole lot different and miss out on the chance to grow my young career. And then – uh Funny conversation, John Robinson, 
who was a fabulous motivator and a great salesman. And many players loved him. I love John. He was just a great, entertaining, inspiring coach. He calls me up after 85 where I'd been on the bench after starting for the 84 season. And uh, he says, hey, you know, I, f- I know you were frustrated this last year. You didn't play as much as you wanted, but we got a great opportunity for you. We're, we're going to trade you. Uh, and there's a great opportunity there. It's this, uh, where, Coach? Uh, San Francisco. San Francisco 49ers. So good luck, Jeff. So I hang <laughs> off and I turn to Stacey. He said, John's trading me. He says it's a great opportunity. San Francisco. Oh, no. Joe Montana, I'm never going to play. <laughs> that was uh, a funny situation. The crazy thing is he got hurt the first week I was with the Niners. And, and then I was thrown into the best and most intense year ever with Mike Holmgren as my quarterback coach and Bill Walsh recrafting this guy that really hadn't learned a lot of football at Dartmouth or at the Rams. But it was altogether different at the Niners. Fabulous. And they were really good. They were good. Jerry Rice was just learning how to run super fast and catch well. The year before he could run fast, but he couldn't catch well. What was that dynamic like? I liked it because it was very intellectual. More so than other teams, I felt like Bill Walsh said, Yes, I want you as an athlete, but I want you to turn into a professional. I want you to be intellectual about this. I want you to get your body in shape, but I want you to get your mind so ahead of the game, so ahead of other teams, get the timing and get the footwork and get the scheme down so much better in this system of ours. And yeah, he had some ego about it, and they called him the genius. Um, And he was a genius football-wise. But it was a blast because they designed plays that made people get open. And if you did the steps right, if you followed their reads, uh, and for me, they put in a lot of play-action passes and bombs. I could throw long and I could scramble. I wasn't Joe Montana in the pocket. I wasn't a great pocket presence, read the defense, pick one, two, three, four, check down. But I could throw play-action bombs to Jerry Rice and Mike Wilson and Dwight Clark and have a great time at it. So that was a great season until the Atlanta Falcons almost wrenched my leg out of my hip socket and... Uh, I got a fan letter, Brock. You'll love this one. About six or seven weeks into the Niner season, and they know I'm hurt, and Montana's coming back. And this supposed fan in San Francisco said, uh, hey, Jeff, I know when Joe Montana comes back, you're just going to feel like you were shoveled off to the side and forgotten. You shouldn't feel bad because Joe Montana's the greatest quarterback to ever play the game, and you should feel lucky to have been on the same team as him. What's it like? Do you get to talk to him at practice? Is he a nice guy? Blah, 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 blah. And then I thought he'd ask me for an autograph. For Joe, he actually asked one for, from me, but then he said, P.S., you're not as bad as some people might say. <laughs> so, I mean, God was working on my ego with these fan letters that addressed uh, some of my fallible nature. And all the while, Dad's like exploding politically, right? Yeah, that was 86, 88. He ran for president. Um, I campaigned in that off season for him. And then, uh, I don't know, I... I didn't pay attention to him as much because I was excited about my career and he was excited about my career. I think he was the only politician who told him, I can't do that speech. I got to be at this game. Either his son, Jimmy at, you know, Wake Forest or me in the NFL or maybe Jimmy was in high school then. But that was a wild time. But at the end of the day, God was training Stacy and me on how to know Christ, how to learn his blueprints for living, how to live in community with other great couples who we met on the teams We did join a strong church, and that was always a good thing for us because we had kids who really uh, needed that stability, and pro football doesn't always give that to you. Um, So we enjoyed raising our kids in Redmond and up here in Seattle during our time with the Seahawks. How did you keep cutting through that performance aspect, Jeff? Some of that is still very much alive in our lives. God did it by getting me traded 
from the Rams and letting me know he's in charge. Then I played real well and started thinking, this is going to be phenomenal, but then I get hurt. And, of course, Joe Montana and Steve Young came the next year. Uh, they traded me to Seattle. These trades um, were saying, no, you don't craft the career, and it's not about your fame. And yet, in 88, I got the chance to start for the Seahawks in a game that Dave Craig was hurt. We played the Niners. I thought I'd just blow them away, lead the team to victory, become the starter, take the Seahawks to the Super Bowl. You know, this late-blooming story would finally happen in uh, what year would this be? My seventh year in the NFL. The first half, a coach, or in, in, pregame, in pregame meal, a coach put his arm around me on the offense. And he said, Jeff, I got to tell you this. And he, he looked at me and whispered, I've been waiting for the day for you to be the Seahawks quarterback. That fed into my script. I felt phenomenal. It was like my dad saying, you know, you can't be the leader. So I went into this game, great week of practice, very confident. My chance is coming. I've waited a long time. And now this coach is so pumped about me. And yet the game didn't go well. I threw four completions in the first half and three of them were the 49ers. It was the worst game ever. Going back to peewee football, the whole stadium booed me. Kingdom, we're losing 28 nothing at half. It's obvious I'm going to get benched. I don't want to be benched. I, I, that's not me. That's not the way I play. I've never played that bad. I've never been booed before. Coach came to you at halftime and said, Jeff, I take back everything no, I that, said. No, that coach, this is, this is where it gets funny. <laughs> and this gets to that performance thing, Brock. I walked up to that coach at halftime thinking I would tell him, if we sent the tight end in motion, he won't get jammed to the line of scrimmage. Cover two will be more malleable if we have someone down the middle and I won't throw two more interceptions on corner outs, which I had in the first half. And then there was, uh, I'll call it a throwaway Hail Mary, but uh, bad decisions. So I wanted to tell coach, maybe we should try the tight end in motion and get him off the line. I said, coach, he was two feet away from me, turned his back, didn't even look at me, called over Kelly Stoffer, put Kelly in the game. That made sense professionally. I understood it, but he didn't speak to me. And I was on the sideline calling signals from him to Kelly, helping Kelly. He didn't talk to me after the game and Monday in films, critiqued my play, which he should, but no, no connection. And literally for about a month, relationship was completely cut off. And we never did have the same relationship again. Obviously, he had a conditional and performance-based value system, and he wasn't the only one in the NFL or on Madison Avenue or on Wall Street or in junior high school or in any job. Uh, it's all over. In the NFL, it's intense, and it, it can grab you more quickly, and it grabbed me. I had one bad half of football, and I was pretty much written off for a number of years You know, to the end of the Seahawks bench. They didn't cut me. I'd been good before, but didn't look like it here. And uh, that guy would hardly even notice me anymore. And that was one of the big things, I think, that God used to teach me. I actually was laying on our apartment carpet with Stacy, processing the disappointment the pain of blowing my chance, being viewed as a bad quarterback and being kind of shoved down to the end of the bench. And I started kind of sniffle and cry. And it hurt that I wasn't playing, but I told her, you know what really hurts? It hurts me that it hurts me this much. In other words, my faith isn't as strong as I thought. I thought I was a Christian who plays football, but this hurts me so much that I must wrap up too much of my hopefulness, too much of my happiness, too much of my life success in this career and in being a good quarterback. So that was God crushing that out of me, saying, hey, I love you for who you are, not what you've done. I love you for what Jesus did, not what you can do. Um, and you don't need to get your dreams to get your version of Christianity and your version of life to have the best life. 
The best life is a life I craft for you. No one has an easy life. Uh, People with amazing success have their own hardships. But these are the things God used to draw me closer to him, to teach me more what it meant to abide with Jesus than just ask for a bucket of blessings and then after the game say, praise Jesus, you know, we played well and I'm going to the Pro Bowl. That never happened, by the way. The Pro Bowl didn't. Oh, it did not happen. No, no. I did praise Jesus, but yeah. didn't get enough interviews. Isn't that kind of cool, This this um, the intersection, right? The intersection of faith and sports. Like for the last half hour, your whole life is just that intersection of faith and sports. And so much of your life, especially through and into your 30s at this point, is just kind of that modeling of what sports is teaching you really about yeah. your faith and what your faith is teaching you in that outlet through sports. It really is the intersection of those. And I, I've i heard you speak a number of times, and there was one, I think, lasting image in, in a story that you have told a number of times in one of the finalities of, of your NFL career where I think Miss Stacy said something to you that um, I don't think you'll ever forget. No, it's it's one of the seminal messages God's given me through my wife and we learn so much from our wives if we listen and I don't always listen so uh, 91 was my 11th season and I had some games with the Seahawks and we won three and lost three I got cut after losing a game on Sunday night, my son said a prayer. Dear God, give Daddy a new team. Put him on the Eagles. He didn't even know Philadelphia had a team. His soccer team was named the Eagles. And I got a call from the GM the next day and went to Philadelphia the next morning. And uh, we're in Houston uh, a few weeks later and have a great game and then finish the season as their starter. Sign a good contract and think, oh, this is a, a new life to my career. I start, you know crafting my version again of what I want out of this life. And so I signed a contract, went to training camp, didn't go well. I was the last player cut and it was one day after the last cut. So I don't know how they did it. They must've been trying to trade me and it didn't work. So they cut me a day after the last cuts. And I flew home to Seattle, lonely flight. I was talking to God and pretty sad. And I started praying that God would give me another team. And everyone said, Hey, you had a good backup year last year. Someone's going to need you. But four weeks went by, no one called me. And, uh, I was concerned. And then Seattle, I think it must have been Dave Craig got hurt or maybe whoever was playing for him that year got hurt. And uh, I called Tom Flores and I said, I'm in town, coach. And I knew him. He, he was the quarterback with my dad in Buffalo. Um, I'm in town. I'm ready. I'm in shape. Be right over. I was just sure this was the answer to my prayer. Keep the kids in school. Stay in the house. This will work better than Philadelphia. And uh, he left a message. Sorry, we're going to sign a guy from the World League. Good luck. Click. And... Uh, here I was, the Bible study leader, tell my testimony, you know, 11 years of walking God with God in the NFL. And my faith at that moment wasn't as strong as my emotions. They were pretty mad, pretty devastated. It hurt to think it might be over and that I was getting crushed out of the league like this. So I went out to the front porch of my house, slammed the door, sat down at this nice four-bedroom home with a sport court and grass in the backyard and running water and electricity and uh, hot shower. I'm in the top 2% of wealthy people in the world, and I'm not thinking one lick about my blessings or the 11 years of free agent, never should have been in the NFL anyway, football that God gave me, the amazing wife he's given me. Um, I'm just thinking, this stinks, and God, I'm not going to pray. I'm just going to sit here and feel this stinking pain. And so I went into a pity party for myself. I don't know how long it landed, but you and I know that we can't get through 
blitzes without a team and literally through life without a team. And my teammate, Stacy, she comes out and starts loving on me and says, oh, Jeff, I can't imagine how much this hurts. But I just have to remind you, we've been through so many things, so many twists and turns and difficult things, and God's always been there. He's always had a plan, a good purpose. And I turned to her, I said, I know that. <laughs> I, just, I just want to finish with some dignity. And uh, then she said something that was classic and delivered from God. She said, well, as I recall, when Jesus left this world, he didn't receive any dignity. Maybe you need to let go of that desire. And so in my Christian maturity and awesome husbanding, I turned to her and said, maybe you need to go inside. <laughs> oh, don't laugh, Brock. You would never say anything similar to your sweet wife. But I, she did. She went inside and I hadn't yet lost my dad to cancer. I hadn't lost stronger families, the ministry that I ran for 18 years where I had to let people go. I had to fire myself. I had to shrink it down to the bare bones um, and basically fire myself so he could stay alive in the hands of a really great young man. And God used that blitz. That was painful. Letting people go. Wow. Um, but the blitz of losing my career at this point was the worst thing I'd ever gone through. Not losing a child or a spouse, which some people have, you know, the ravages of cancer. But, uh, man, this was it. The worst blitz I'd ever faced. And in a matter of probably 20 seconds, the thought of Jesus dying with no dignity when he deserved all dignity and me whining over a 12th year of pro football when he had gone to the cross voluntarily for me was the most amazing moment of my life. And I don't know that I was a very emotional Christian. I'm an emotional guy, but I don't know that my emotional passion and love for God and receptivity to his love was as deep and emotional as it could have been. And right in that moment, I was flooded with love from him as I realized what he did to you know, say no to the heroics and yes to the sacrifice and the death on the cross and the abandonment and the, the rejection and the scourging and, of course, the separation from the Father. Take my sin, my crud, my pride, my ego, um, everything that I and everyone else in the world has ever done wrong on our shoulders, his shoulders. And I started to feel that love, Brock, and I started to cry. And I couldn't avoid praying. I just started falling in love with God and feeling his love for me. And then I heard these words, forget what lies behind and press on to what lies ahead. And that was kind of the, the word from God. It's out of the book of Philippians. Paul said it. Um, it kind of set me free. Okay, I don't need to you know, start a restaurant with my name on it, which as a lifelong backup quarterback, uh, I wouldn't have many people coming to it probably. And I don't need to be a broadcaster. I couldn't have done it well like you. I don't need to have some great famous career. I'm going to go into shaping fatherhood, encouraging marriages, strengthening families so kids can have their mom and dad, which is really the anchor of whether things go well or not. And that's what God let me do, not because I'm good at that stuff, but because he gave me a passion for it. And I needed so much help to make my marriage strong that I guess God wanted me to spill it into other people's lives. So that was setting me free, free from pro football to jump into the next chapter. And one of the neat things, and I think some of the feedback I've heard in this podcast, Jeff, is, okay, I want to hear about these guys now. Tell me Jeff Kemp now. The Jeff Kemp through the 40s and and Jeff Kemp now into his 50s. And does that performance battle stop? It changes. It changes and it adjusts and you think it goes away because you start maybe doing things that are less obviously for fame and fortune. But 
if in any way they can get people's applause or they can say, oh, that's so neat that you do ministry and you didn't go to Wall Street and try to make a lot of money or do this corporate thing. You can get some kudos for that. And not really necessarily that you're trying for it, but we can attach to that stuff. Um, you can be a performing Christian, a performing ministry person, a performing podcast host, you know. But I wouldn't say I'm a performer as much as I am affected by those motives that sometimes can attach too much to that. So my mid-30s um, through, I don't know, late 40s was entrepreneurially leading a nonprofit organization and doing ministry to help marriages and families. And man, it was hard because you're starting and building a team and raising funds. And I love the speaking part. I wasn't great at the administration part, but God did great things. Um, and then, like I said earlier, I went through an incredible blitz in 2009 when the economy crushed our budget and we couldn't go forward. We were, we were overextended and I was responsible for it as the leader. And God used that blitz to say, you don't need to hold on to this organization. Your identity is not in this. It doesn't need you to go forward. Your visions might have been nice, but let's turn it over to someone else. And boy, that was so hard. I, I did have a lot of me and some of my pride and more God-serving performance wrapped up in it. Um, but letting go of it was great because God said, I'm going to go send you speaking all across the country and working with a marriage movement group, Family Life, that has way more resources than you can cobble together on your own. And so that's one wonderful. And Stacey and I get to do marriage conferences, and I get to do a lot of men's conferences and speak on marriage to men and fatherhood to men. I love doing that. Um, and now I'm doing that more full-time. But, gosh, even this last year, I've had another change, like being traded from a team or going out as a free agent. You wonder. Do I have what it takes? Will I measure up? I do know, but beyond a shadow of doubt, my identity is in Christ. I'm his father's son, and I have an awesome wife. We love our sons. They love us. That really is our legacy. But I love serving God. I just don't want to attach performance to it. But I won't, I won't say that I'm clean completely yet still hard. Last thing here, and you said something pretty profound earlier. In all your years of playing and, and facing the blitz has become such a neat piece for you. And you said earlier, and it's true, and I realize this from a football perspective with Peyton, don't blitz Peyton. You blitz Peyton, he's going to read it, he's going to see it, and then he is going to blitz you. And you said the great quarterbacks and teams get to that point where they're all on the same page and they want that blitz. Like, come on, yeah. bring it. Because I'm going to gash you on the Peyton was licking his chops for it. Tom Brady licks his chops. And the great ones want that, right? And I don't know if this is too titanic of a shift or this is where the parallel falls or the metaphor. But do you want to invite blitz in your Christian life? Do you really want to invite? You said earlier, you know, you get to the place as a quarterback where you want, want to welcome that blitz. You don't invite the blitz, meaning you want new things to happen that are hard. You want new losses or shocking, painful things. You don't want that. Uh, but Jesus says you don't don't want to act like it's not coming, and you don't want to avoid it. You don't want to shut your eyes and think, I can live in a Christian bubble in America because I tithe and go to church and do some good things, stop doing some bad stuff. That isn't what God put us here for. 
Jesus said, in this world, you're going to get blitz, but don't panic. I overcame that blitz. John 16:33 in the NFL version, which I know you have. Uh, you're going to have trouble in this world, he said. But he said, I sent you here to be transformed into the character of Jesus Christ, Romans 8, 29. And then if you're transformed into the character of Christ, which happened to him through suffering, so it's going to happen to us through trials and tribulation and suffering, then you're going to be a much better ambassador. And that's your job. Be a representative for Jesus, an imperfect, fallible, honest, real person who has this amazing sense of grace and freedom and joy and love and an identity that says the Father likes me. And I think men need to hear this, Brock. God likes us. We know he loves us. You know, that's kind of the Christian Bible thing. We can understand that, Jesus on the cross. But he actually likes us. Your sin is wiped out. The message of the blitz in the Bible, uh, Apostle Paul talks about it, is, hey, we have salvation, we have hope, we have glory of God, we have these amazing things to rejoice in, but we also rejoice in, he calls them sufferings and tribulations. I call them blitzes. Because they bring about perseverance towards Christ, character like Christ, hope in Christ and in heaven, and you feel more love when your life may be hard, but you're crying out to him than when your life is floating along pretty nice and you're not focused on desperate dependence and abiding in God and thinking, heaven is my treasure. A new car is not. A job that I wished I could have held on to is not. One more season of football is not. Even the health of our child, as important as that is, that isn't the determinant of do I have treasures for eternity. It may be the, the lack of health or the trial that you're going through is the thing that blossoms a relationship with Jesus Christ and leads people to know him. So don't root for the blitzes to come, but the minute they come, say, this has been sifted through God's hands. He's sovereign. And I'm going to rejoice at the opportunity it gives me to get closer to Christ. Let him run my life better than I could have on my own. I'm going to tell my friends about my problem and ask them to pray. I'm not going to hide this sucker and, and live in isolation. No one beats the blitz alone. So that's why you got your buddies, and that's why I got my buddies. The intersection of faith and sports, which is really what both of our lives are. Uh, yours was through your professional football playing dad at first, and mine was in Piala wearing the old gear of my dad's and watching all his practices and football and sports, kind of what we've known. The best counsel you can give to those that tune into this is parents, as current athletes, as grandparents with their grandkids, of how to navigate that intersection of faith and sports. I'll just go back to Bruce Brown's wisdom. And Bruce has coached uh, all sorts of teams, high school and college, and now he coaches coaches across the country on the value and virtue of sports, how to do it right. He simply says that coaches coach and players play and parents cheer. Grandparents actually know how to do that. They typically won't go overboard unless they're still living vicariously. Um, but coaches coach and players play and parents cheer. Now that was hard for me because I was a parent that coached, but my kids all said they loved playing for me. I made it fun. Um, I didn't call plays soon enough and my quarterback sons would yell at me cause I was given the delay of games cause I wanted the perfect play. <laughs> um, so that, that principle helps. Number one, if you yell at a ref, you're rejecting the authority of God. If you get mad at a coach and call him and play your kid, you're teaching your kid to whine, complain, and make excuses, the opposite of Pete Carroll's philosophy. That won't do him any service in the world. Uh, cheer for your kid. Champion your kid. But champion their character, their perseverance, the, one, the fact that they're the one that pats everyone on the back, that they're the encourager on the team. They're the one that kind of has some moral fiber to them that won't make fun of other people or talk that way about girls and sex and stuff. 
champion their character. Still tell them, you know, you're proud of the way they play, fun to see out there today. Uh, but don't make all your encouragement about the performance. And at the end of the day, sports is about striving for excellence, both in yourself, but interestingly, by getting so humble that you can serve a teammate and have great success like the Golden State Warriors or somebody, okay? Uh, that really is through humility. So there's a great message in sports. Serve others. Be an investor, not a consumer from them. You can't win Super Bowls as being a consumer. The weird thing is that we don't carry those great sports messages of humility and servanthood and sacrifice and a cause greater than ourselves and die for the cause over into our private relationship with a girlfriend or a wife or our kids. We try to consume from them like we're the center of the show. So I guess I'd tell them, hey, like coaches coach, players play, parents cheer, grandparents cheer doubly loud. They're awesome. I love being a grandparent of a one-year-old. Um, and make sure your kids figure out that their identity in Christ and their character come before whether they're the good pitcher or the good musician or whatever the performance thing is that your family tends to value. Above and Beyond, the intersection of faith and sports. Subscribe to receive every episode at aboveandbeyondpodcast.com.